For this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Oh, that's the heart of the gospel right there. And it's not completely understandable or explainable, although it is understandable and explainable. It's not completely because that is the most awesome truth we'll ever ponder, that Jesus took our place. It's amazing to be able to gather together like this and remember what Jesus did for us every week when we gather like this. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I haven't seen a lot of you in a long time. My name's Eric Tonis. If you're visiting or new to Grace, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thankful to have my family part of this church for over 24 years, and we love this church family. And I, again, with Jenny, joyful Jenny Earl, want to thank you for coming here and jumping in to the service this morning. It, it, as she said, it's always exciting to start another school year. I not only am a pastor here, but I get to teach theology for Biola University, which I've done for a couple decades, and I'm really thankful I get to do that as well. So welcome, students. We've got a bunch of softball players up here, highly skilled, tough athletes right there. There you go. Welcome, ladies. Can I just have a word with the especially new college students? Just a quick couple words of advice from a grandfather figure for you. Um, Here's just a bit of advice. I don't think there's anything more important. I've worked with college students for 30 years, and I don't think there's anything more important during these college years, even as a Christian college student, which you may be. You may be at Cal State Fullerton or somewhere else as well, and I don't want to ever neglect your presence here. But maybe especially if you're at a Christian college, you may neglect being meaningfully involved in a local church family. And I want to encourage you as strongly as I can, don't let these vital formative years of your life be without a meaningful local church family. We need you, and you need the church. You don't need a college group when you come here either. You live in a college group. And you, when you come here, just go find someone 30 years older than you or 15 years younger than you and move toward them and get to know people different than you are. I could give you lots of other advice, but that, like, delete all your social media apps. It'll just make you... <laughs> I'm serious. It'll just make you depressed, insecure, and weird. It, it will. So just... Just delete those things right now. Just move toward people, talk them to them, look them in the face, call people even, and see, see how that goes, and, and dive into life with all you've got. These are crucial. These are your salad years. Have you ever heard that term, salad years? No. Yeah, you're past the, past the appetizer, but you're not even in the main course yet. You're in your salad years. It's a phenomenal time. Enjoy these salad years of your life. They're incredibly important and formative and move toward people who are godly and wise and not just like you and, and just wring everything you can out of this time in your life and nothing more important than a local church family in this time. That's, that's the context you'll be in the rest of your life. It may not be as cool as college life, but there's something really important about that because most of life isn't very cool. I like a smoke machine along with the rest of them, but I, I, I love being part of a church that doesn't care about cool. And it doesn't have to be this church, you know, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, disciple-making church where there are a bunch of, good, bunch of good ones in this area. So, okay, end of Big Brother pep talk. Okay, 
Uh, to the rest of you, it's good to be back. We just rolled back into town after being gone for almost three months. I thought I was going to be primarily an evangelist when I was a young man, and God moved things in a different direction where I get to equip the saints for the work of the ministry mostly as a theology prof and a pastor here. But I'm so grateful that in the summers, God enables my family to go and preach the gospel to do a lot of evangelism. And man, did God work this summer. I, I preached uh, like 40, around 50 messages this summer from coast to coast, and people are hungry, people. You hear so many negative things about our society and especially about young people, but people are hungry. Look, look this is my favorite photograph of all the preaching I got, got to do this summer. I don't know if you can see that, but after the, the, the meetings, kids would gather for sometimes an hour and a half asking questions and wanting prayer and, and wanting help and counsel. There is a hunger, especially among young people. I'm not sure all the factors going into it, but clearly the Spirit of God is working. Look at the faces on those kids. I think this is about an hour and 20 minutes after the meeting was over, and they're still asking questions and wanting help with everything from, from their, their mental illness issues to addictions to, to friends who don't know Jesus that they want to reach. It's just amazing. And we got to preach to actually thousands of people this summer and saw hundreds trust Christ for the first time. It was an amazing summer, a fruitfulness that was just astounding. And I'm so grateful for the way God's working. One of the, one of the youth ministers, counselors came up to me the morning after a whole bunch of kids stood to trust Jesus on Thursday night, and she had tears streaming down her face, and all she said to me was, we serve a great God. And I just think that sums it up. Yes, it was, it was just amazing because God just moved into the young lady she's discipling and rocked them and changed their lives forever. It was just incredible to see God work. Got to preach at Hume, New England in Monterey, Massachusetts. It, in Monterey, Massachusetts is not even an hour drive from where Jonathan Edwards had his first and second church. It's not even 17 miles from where he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and the Great Awakening started. It's not even an hour drive from where D.L. Moody was born, this key figure in the Second Great Awakening. It's just an incredible birthplace of God's work in the past, and it's so spiritually cold and dead. I showed the kids and the, the, the pastors and the youth counselors this map when I was at Hume, New England. Look at this. This is research done. The, the most post-Christian cities in America. Look at that. Yes, you've, you've got 9 and 10 on the West Coast, but look at the top eight. The Northeast, the, the birthplace of the first and second Great Awakening is so post-Christian. No, no place for the Bible, not no place, but relatively less place for the Bible, for Jesus, for the importance of God or the church in people's lives. But I got to tell you something. I, I wanted to show them what they were up against because the theme was being resilient Christians in an increasingly hostile culture that we were preaching, and, and I, but I didn't want to discourage them, but I, I got to tell you, when I showed them this map, I was looking at their faces, and their faces, all of them were saying, let's roll. Here we go. Yeah, it was just beautiful to see, and I wanted to show you this because a lot of people are moving out of Southern California for lots of good reasons sometimes, economic or family issues, 
But sometimes I hear Christians saying, I got to get out of here because this place is too pagan. This place is too opposed to my Christian faith. That's exactly where we need to be, people. Let's not, let's not buy into this idea that we want to go to easier pastures. We need to be where God needs us in this world. And so it, it was just an incredible opportunity to serve in this way. But I got to tell you, I th the entire time God was using these meetings and these messages we were having, I had such a sense of being a very frail, fallen, weak means that God was just deciding to use in those ways. You all remember, a lot of you remember Dave Talley. He's probably in his boat right now in East Tennessee where he moved. He bought a boat within five days of moving to East Tennessee and a pickup truck. And, um, and he's out there doing his thing. But he, he was, he's a dear friend. He was a pastor here for a while. But I, I think the way his daughter, Amanda, came to Christ was a hilarious story. I just love this story. And it, he, he took Amanda to this concert of a guy who was big in the 80s called Salty the Singing Songbook. Does anyone remember Salty? Yeah. Salty wrote these Bible songs and for kids, and he was this big foam songbook that, that would lead the kids in singing, right? But, so Dave took Amanda, his daughter, to a Salty concert. And she was seven years old, and at the end of the concert, Salty, the big foam songbook, preached the gospel and invited kids to come forward to pray with him to trust Jesus. And Dave's sitting there, after he and his wife Joni had read the Bible to Amanda since she was a baby and prayed with her and prayed for her and taught her the things of God, and she gets up to go trust Jesus with Salty. And Dave said, he grabbed her and said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to do what Salty said. I'm going to trust Jesus. And he said, no, no. Um, this is not how I envisioned it. I thought we, you and my mom and I would kneel at your bedside and it would be us, family, not salty. She said, but I want to trust Jesus. And he said, all right, all right. Can I at least go with you? And he, he went down with her. And she trusted Jesus, you know. And all summer I felt like salty, the singing song, this big foam songbook after parents and pastors and youth leaders and core group leaders and teachers and coaches and neighbors were praying and pouring into people's lives. And then God just says, all right, we're going to have a harvest now. And I'll use you like I can use a donkey to do that or a puffy songbook. And that's how we are. God uses goofy people for great things. And let's not minimize how he can and wants to use us. So as we start another school year and go deeper in our understanding, I can't think of a better passage than the one God orchestrated we're going to be diving into this morning. It's just incredible how it gets right down to what really matters. And we need to know the complexities and the depth of our Christian faith, but we can never lose the simplicity of it either. Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23? We've been preaching through the gospel of Luke for a long time now here at Grace. It's been a, a, a wonderful journey as we've done this. And we have been so helped in our understanding of Jesus and what it really means to be one of his. We've seen God's heart for the lost, for the marginalized, 
for the least expected ones who get it over and over again in this gospel of Luke especially, even more than the other gospels, there's an emphasis on the least likely ones getting who Jesus is better than the ones you thought would know better. They don't. The religious people, the impressive people, the people with with good resumes and and degrees after their name keep missing it over and over again, and the lepers and the blind and the prostitutes, they get it. And and there's something central to the gospel's understanding that it's grace at the core of it. And the reality is so often accomplished people don't get it. Why is that? Because they haven't gotten to the end of themselves. They've lived lives that have fed self-sufficiency and self-absorption and arrogance and life will break you and get you to the end of yourself so that you finally get to the feet of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see so clearly in our passage this morning. We've learned so much about Jesus, and it seems as if here Luke is turning a corner and God inspires him to give us understanding of not just who Jesus is, but who we are before him. Our response to Jesus has to be in line with who Jesus is and how he responds to us. And we see that so clearly here in Luke 23. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we go to your word now to hear from you. Lord, it's going to be through means, but we want to hear from you. As the Spirit works and your word guides us, we pray that you would bring us a life-transforming message and not just more information. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Luke 23, beginning of verse 26. Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Imagine just going on a journey and having an experience that you end up telling your grandchildren about. He's just coming in from the country. This this African man who actually Mark says is the father of a couple guys named Rufus and Alexander. So his kids at least had become known to the believers to whom Mark writes. So it seems that this experience, if he weren't a believer in Jesus yet, became one, and even his children ended up starting a second generation of those who take up their cross and follow Jesus. Amazing. Life-changing. This image of Simon literally, physically carrying a cross should really impact us because Jesus says, doesn't he, in Luke chapter 9, that what it means to be one of his is to take up your cross daily and follow him. That's not the image you often get in the American church in the teaching and even worship 
or evangelism that we portray. Very often it's come to Jesus and your life will be filled with health and wealth and ease. No, the, the gospel is cross-centered. It's, it's cruciform. The Christian life is, is oriented around and conformed by, defined by the cross. Now we follow in his footsteps on the way to the cross with our own cross daily, but please realize that that difficulty and, circum and, and suffering, which certainly comes with it, leads to freedom. It leads to joy. It leads to forgiveness. It leads to everything you ever wanted in the deep recesses of your soul. And so Simon is this powerful image for us. Verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. I think this is important. Clearly, there was opposition to Jesus. There was through his whole life. And it was led by religious leaders, the people that have, should have known better. And there was a significant number who were, not, who were in opposition to Jesus. But just like in our time, let's not assume the worst about everybody. I mean, at the very least, we have a great multitude watching Jesus go to the cross who are sympathetic, who aren't excited about this and celebrating this. Let's not assume the worst. As much opposition as we may see in maps like I showed you, in post-Christianity taking hold, and secularism and these things. But do you know among people who are truly devoted and attend church regularly and read their Bible regularly, there's no drop-off in devotion. There's no drop-off in number. We've got a lot of nominal Christians walking away. But I think not a whole lot of true disciples walking away. And so there's a multitude who are at least sympathetic. Jesus will unpack that for us in a bit. But they're mourning and lamenting for him. Watch Jesus' response. It's fascinating, verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem. This is fascinating. Luke is especially interested, as is the entire New Testament, in the women who follow Jesus. There's not one time that women are opposed to Jesus. Men are plenty of times, and it doesn't mean women are less sinful than men. The Bible says that in spite of your, what your experience may be. Um, but there's, there's an insight just related to what I was saying before, that the people who don't have the primary authority and prominence very often are the ones who get Jesus the best. And that certainly would have been true of the women, and here they're highlighted, although they're not exactly thinking the way they need to be. Look what he says to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, in Jewish thinking, having children was an incredible blessing of God. Very unlike increasingly people's thinking our day. It was an amazing blessing because children are an incredible blessing. But 
At the heart of that blessing was the realization that the solution to the human sin problem would come through a seed of a woman. And so every time a child was born, it was a reminder of God's provision through childbearing. That ultimately leads to the Messiah. But here he says, judgment's going to be so bad that you'll be glad you never have children. You'll be glad it wasn't possible because the judgment will be coming on you, but you won't have to watch your children suffer it too. That's how serious Jesus is about judgment. He goes on, verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? So this is talking about judgment. Now, it has an immediate fulfillment in 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed. Great destruction comes upon Jerusalem, but it's also pointing to the ultimate judgment that's coming where everyone will stand before God. Jesus taught about judgment and hell more than anybody else in the Bible by far. You can't be cool with Jesus and against judgment, against wrath. It just doesn't go that way. Judgment's real. We need to come to grips with it. It is appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment, the Bible says. And Jesus is pointing that out here. He's saying, he's saying if, if this green sapling himself, I think, this is hard to understand, but I think he's saying if this green sapling is being thrown into the fire when it doesn't belong in the fire, you don't throw green wood in the fire. What's going to happen to the cursed and rotted tree in judgment? It's a comparison here. It goes on, look, verse 32, two others who were criminals, we know these as the thieves on the cross, and they're elsewhere called insurrectionists. They're rebels. They're not just petty thieves. First of all, they're bad thieves. You don't get crucified for just stealing. You get crucified for armed robbery that includes murder. And this is no doubt taking place seeing they're called insurrectionists in the context of undermining Rome, of rebelling against Rome. So these are bad criminals here. And they're to, put to be put to death with the innocent man, Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Can you believe how understated that is? That's it. Not they drove the nail into his feet and hands and blood gushed forth. And it, 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 now we get some detail elsewhere but not dramatically, not in a way that is trying to affect you by the physical torture. Oh, it was horrific, no doubt about it. But I think movies actually like The Passion can be a bit misguided in emphasizing what the Bible seems to at times work hard to not emphasize because something much bigger is going on here. So when Jesus is in the garden, and he says, if this cup could pass from me, may it be so, but not my will, but thy will be done. Oh, he's no doubt dreading the physical suffering that awaits. But bearing the sin of the world, being considered accursed and judged in the place of those who should be judged, experiencing forsaking by the Father, 
That's the great source of dread. And we don't want to put an undue emphasis on the physical torture, as bad as it was, to the point where we miss what's really going on here. I think that's actually the problem of the women he corrects. And they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you imagine being in that place and asking God to forgive those who are executing you? Forgive those who are mocking you, as we'll see, cursing you, spitting on you, beating you, and you somehow have in you, in your heart, the ability to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now, in one part, they, they, don't know, they know exactly what they're doing. There's no doubt they know what they're doing, but what he's saying is, is there's a blindness in the midst of the intentional rebellion. It's like a passage I preached just a few months ago where, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he says, if they had known the way of peace, they wouldn't have rejected their Messiah, he says. Oh, they knew in part, but they didn't know the way they needed to. And so he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Awesome heart of God we see here that should actually be our hearts who've been forgiven. But we'll get to that. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Yet another prophecy in the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And the people stood by watching. There seems to be a passivity here among these people, but the rulers scoffed at him and said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews and the Romans didn't agree on anything. But here we have a source of agreement, <laughs> mocking Jesus, crucifying Jesus. They're, they're on the same page, ridiculing him, saying, obviously, this cannot be the way. And then we get our final glimpse. We get to listen in on a conversation between three men who are dying. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, the criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And listen to these words. As we go deeper in our understanding of the Christian faith, let's never disdain the simplicity of these words. And he said, Jesus, the only one to use his name in this story. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Anybody who says the Bible's boring 
could never have read it. This is awesome teaching. And, and what I want us to see very, very clearly is four potential responses to Jesus we see in this story. The first is the response of the mocking crowd. Everybody's mocking Jesus. Well, not everybody, but a whole lot of people, starting with the leaders. And if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a true Christian, you've got to be a dolphin, not a jellyfish. I heard somebody say that once. It's a great image. Dolphins soar over the waves in the direction they're going. Jellyfish just go with the flow. Is that a good jellyfish imitation for you? Can anybody do a better one? Yes. They go with the flow. I love the theme we did this summer for Hume Lake and Hume New England. It, it, was, it was some followers of Magnus the king who got washed up on the shores of this island who worshipped trash. They were called the trashers. And they worshipped whatever the tide brought in. Trash. And, and they, would, they would chant, Tide or die, tide or die. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to go against the flow. The Bible says that fallen people, which is how we all boot up, look at the gospel we're seeing played out on this cross, and they think it's foolish. They think it's foolishness. That's why you can hear a lot of preaching about Jesus, which just emphasizes his teaching and his kindness and his consider the lily kinds of things. But not the cross. But, but as we said, the cross is at the heart of all of Jesus' ministry. He's heading to this cross as the God-man so that he can win our salvation, our forgiveness, our redemption. But if you're going to be somebody who truly follows Jesus and doesn't domesticate him or Americanize him or enculturate him or conform him to your ideas, you got to be a dolphin, not a jellyfish. It's just, just how it goes. The world considers the cross foolishness. Those who are perishing consider it foolishness. Listen to what Anton Scalia said once. Supreme Court Justice. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he's not disappointed. Devout Christians are destined to be regarded as fools in modern society. We are fools for Christ's sake. We must pray for courage to endure the scorn of the sophisticated world. I, he says, if I brought any message today in the speech he gave, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ's sake and the courage to suffer contempt of the sophisticated world. How do you do that when we so desperately want to be popular and social media feeds that like a beast? We want to be liked. We want to be popular. You do it by realizing that when the world says we're on the wrong side of history, they're wrong. They're on the wrong side of history. Because if you notice, it seems like Jesus is a helpless victim through this whole story, right? Starting with verse 26, they led him away. 
They're, they're doing the leading. They seize Simon of Cyrene. Jesus seems like a helpless victim, but the Bible is intent on making sure we realize God's in control of even every detail of this, like the casting of lots for his garments that were prophesied. It's all under God's control. He looks like a helpless victim. Remember the scene where he's with Pilate and he's dripping blood from being beaten all night in John 19, and he's freezing Pilate out. Pilate's asking him questions. He's not saying anything to him. And Pilate finally gets ticked, and he says, you're not going to answer me? Don't you know I have the authority to hand you over to be killed? And finally, Jesus speaks. And he turns to Pilate, and he says, you have no authority that isn't being given to you. I know it looks like you're in charge, Pilate, but I am. It's astounding. You want to talk about foolishness from the world's eyes, which is all about attaining more power, more prominence, more prestige, more impressiveness, more likes, more hearts, more influencer points, if that's a thing. And you, and you just want to make yourself as big and as important in the world's eyes as you can. The way up in God's kingdom is down. Unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. The first will be last. The last will be first. The greatest in his kingdom is the one who washes feet most instinctively. See, it, it's so different. You know, it's called the upside-down kingdom. It's actually the right-side-up kingdom because the world's upside-down. I only need to read the news for 90 seconds to make it clear to me the world's upside-down. And our job as Christians is to see the world right-side-up from God's perspective and help others to do the same. That's what ministry is. That's what evangelism is. And so we pursue Christ and are willing to be called foolish. And so we recognize that God's in control, and we see the crowd mocks. That's one response. Don't be a mocker. God won't be mocked, the Bible says. We don't want to be in that crowd. And among, of the four responses we see in this passage, only one is a good one. The second one isn't a good one either, even though it looks like a good one, and it's the women. It's the women that he gives a gentle rebuke to because they have sympathy for him. They're looking at his suffering, and they have sympathy for him. And, and he probably couldn't have responded the way he did if he had to carry his cross. That's probably, that's no doubt what part of what's going on with God. He looks at these women, and he says, don't cry for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for those who don't really know who I am and aren't going to see that their salvation is found in this journey to the cross. Weep for them. Weep the way I did. Doesn't mean we don't weep. Doesn't mean emotions aren't part of the Christian life. Doesn't mean there isn't plenty of reason to weep, but we can't re weep for shallow, sentimental, frothy reasons. You know, it's good to have compassion when people are suffering physical suffering or hunger or, 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 or those sorts of things. But our deepest weeping needs to be for people who don't know the Savior of their souls and are heading toward an eternity of judgment. Our great, greatest weeping needs to be for what matters most. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, I, I went to see The Passion of the Christ. And it was a powerful movie. And I'm not saying there's not some value in appreciating the physical suffering. But I saw people walk out of that theater weeping. 
But I, I just wanted to preach the gospel when it was over to everybody and say, why are you weeping? Are you weeping for the right reasons? Is it just sentimentality? Is it, is it just human compassion that doesn't realize the reason he was on that cross was to save your soul from a greater judgment than you could ever fathom? We've got to preach the truth to people, people. We can't pull our punches and hedge our bets because Jesus didn't. He shot straight. Isn't that how we should be? So he tells them the truth, and, and we've got to tell people the truth too. They're sympathetic, but it's superficial sentimentality. Jesus is concerned about those watching. Isn't that amazing? If there's anyone who has the right to be self-absorbed and self-pitying, it's Jesus in this moment, this innocent sufferer beaten all night and heading to a cross, so weak he can't even carry his own cross. And in that moment, he looks at these people who are missing the point, and his heart is toward them. That doesn't just happen. He learned obedience from the things he suffered throughout his whole life that in this moment he's able to turn away from his own immediate needs to theirs and their eternal needs. And we need to be people who are oriented that way as well. And so, sentimentality isn't the answer. And the third option isn't either that first thief on the cross. What does he say? He joins with the mocking, but then he says, if you're the Christ... Save us and save yourself. Get us out of this. So it's interesting. He goes to Jesus as a possible source of salvation, but he's missing the point mightily. He just wants salvation from his immediate circumstances and wants Jesus to free himself from those immediate circumstances. In other words, you got mocking. You got sympathy. Neither of those do the job. And now you've got conditions. He's basically saying, I'll follow you, I'll be one of yours if you fulfill the job description I have for you, if you meet my agenda for your life and ministry, if you function in a way to save me from this immediate problem. And so much of our culture is oriented around our felt needs, and we so often miss our ultimate needs. And Jesus won't do that. He loves us too much to just stay with the superficial and this guy's missing the point when he comes to Jesus with conditions. He comes to God with demands. He comes to God with contingent worship. And, and this is such a natural instinct. I found myself doing this in my life when I was less mature. You know, I still find myself with this instinct as well. Lord, if you get me out of this mess I've gotten myself into, I'll give more, I'll serve more, I'll worship you, I'll, I'll, I'll shore up that area of sin in my life. If you do this, it's a little deal we strike with God. Now God's so patient with that sort of immaturity, but we've got to move past that, and God needs to become our only non-negotiable. See, he comes to Jesus with the non-negotiable of saving him in the way he wants to be saved right now. Jesus needs to be the only non-negotiable. And that's what we find in this other thief. We don't find conditions. We find contrition. Is that a big word you don't know? It just means being sorry for your sin, for what you've done wrong. Sorrow for sin, true repentance. He comes with a humility. 
probably because he heard Jesus pray the prayer of Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And he knew it applied to them and it to himself. And so he's motivated by this, and he sees Jesus differently. He was probably mocking right along with everybody until he heard those words. And then he rebukes the other thief, and he sees himself rightly. And he says, we deserve what we're getting. Now, I don't think he was agreeing that his insurrection against Rome was wrong. I think he's agreeing to a much broader category of his rebellion against God here, that he needed forgiveness because he's a sinner, not just because of some crimes he committed. He's truly contrite. I love this humility, this honesty, this repentance. It's so personal. He doesn't just say, forgive me. He says, remember me. Remember me. This phrase has been just pounding me. Oh, have you signed up to take theology classes? Some of you are probably going to be in my theology class this fall. Some of you were in it a long, long time ago. (laughs) And we're going to go deep. We're going to go really deep. But let's never forget the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He he had some categories that a, a Jewish man would have had here about the kingdom of God and the Messiah. And the pieces come together. And he says, this guy's going to inherit a kingdom. And you know what? Jesus' response, again, is so beautiful and powerful and simple at the same time. I think the guy was probably thinking, you know, way down the road someday, after I'm dead and gone, but you finally bring your kingdom in to this needy world. Would you remember me, include me in that? And Jesus says, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, don't get caught up in that. It, it's, it's just the garden. It's just the place, place of provision and safety and security that is all around the presence of God and relationship with God. The whole thing begins in a garden, right? Donna did seminars for high school kids 16 times this, this summer, and, and they ate it up because it was about trees. And it begins with a tree. And that access to that tree of life is cut off and it all ends with a tree where we have access again. But in the middle of those two trees is a tree where Jesus dies in our place. And he says to this guy something stunningly greater than he had ever imagined. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Don't miss the personal nature of this. Being a Christian isn't just having your sins forgiven. It's not just being declared righteous. It's having a relationship with God. He says, you'll be with me. That's the important thing. Oh, the forgiveness has to happen if that sort of intimacy is going to be present. If that sort of relationship is going to be reality. We've got to deal with our sin. We've got to deal with the coming judgment that it's poured out on Jesus instead of ourselves. But Jesus says, I will remember you. And he uses the word remember, and he moves it to with presence. Jesus is the best friend, the best advocate, the best savior you could ever have. Please don't go another day without Jesus as that savior, as that friend, as that one who represents you before the judgment seat of God where you're declared because of him not guilty. That's the truth of the gospel.
But that's the awesome reality of who we are in Christ. And look what it says in the back. Can everybody turn around and look at that? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Gospel of Luke starts with the angels declaring, today a Savior's been born. Jesus starts his public ministry by, by reading this prophecy of the Messiah who would come and he would preach the good news to the poor and release the captives. And he rolls up the scroll and he says, today in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. And then Jesus says to this thief, today you'll be with me. Let's not think of God as just the God of the past. And let's not just think of him as the God of the future. He's the God of today. Who, when you come to him in humility and repentance and a teachable heart, wanting to be remembered by him, he says, I'll do more than that. I just won't remember you. I'll bring you to myself. And you'll be with me where I am in paradise. Paradise. We're brought home. He gives this man a blessing he could never have imagined. Tracy Manson is in paradise with Jesus. She wasn't when I said goodbye to her in June. But she is now. Paradise awaits. The place of security and, and provision and salvation and being with Christ awaits all those who don't mock, awaits those who don't just have superficial sympathy, awaits those who don't come to God with conditions, but it comes to those who simply say, remember me. In repentance and faith, that's the gospel. Please, don't leave here today if you're not exactly sure what's going on here. We're going to have people praying. I'll be praying with people up here. Please, come and let us pray for you. Let us make sure you understand the gospel that we've been preaching this morning and preach whenever we gather. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are a people who need help. No less desperate than the thief on the cross. Lord, keep us from thinking we need to be mockers so the world thinks we're cool. Lord, please help us from just having a superficiality to our appreciation for Jesus without an understanding that he's not just a sympathetic sufferer, but the Savior of the world. Lord, please help us not to come to you with conditions, even though it's so natural for us to do that, but to come to you just asking you to remember us. And we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today is the day of salvation. And you command that if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So I pray no one here would harden their hearts as they hear his voice today. And so, Lord, help us now to continue together as your people, unified around Jesus and that foolish cross. That's the wisdom of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.